I love these longer days, but I hate losing an hour's sleep. But that's okay. We're in the sixth chapter of the book of John. Last week we had began, Jesus had began his uh, bread of life discourse. Remember the multitude, they had crossed over the Sea of Galilee. After Jesus had fed probably 10 or 12,000 people. So they cross over and they're seeking him out. They're seeking him out for food. But the problem is they're seeking him out for the food that will perish. And Jesus is wanting to give them everlasting life through himself. Those are the things that matters. But he says in John chapter 6, verse 25 through 27... And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. Because God the Father has set his seal on him. Jesus says, stop laboring for that which is temporary, which is so easily to do. Stop laboring for the physical things. The hunger and thirst that you're seeking for, they're not physical things. But he says, but labor for the food which endures the everlasting life. Then he gives a quick twist. Like the movie Sixth Sense, he, he, he says, hey, stop looking, stop seeking me for physical food. That, that really doesn't satisfy but the here and now. And it seems as if the question really doesn't uh, originate from the crowd. And I believe I know why uh, the answer Jesus gives them. What happens, he, Jesus bypasses their heart because of the hardness of their hearts. They don't understand. And it goes straight to their carnal mind. And we'll see this because he says once again, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor. Right there, they got hung up on the word labor. Or works for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. Once again, he's not speaking of salvation here because salvation we know is a free gift. He's not saying labor to be saved, he's saying give your time, your attention to those things relative to eternity. Those things are what matters. But once again, the crowd brain short circuits there, bypassed. His call for this spiritual food, and only they comprehend, is the natural sustenance. That's why it says in verse 28, Then they said to him, here's the question, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? One of my favorite verses in the Bible. What shall we do in order for us to do the works of God? Their question, what shall we do, is a code for how Shall we be saved? They wanted to know what works God required of them, that they might qualify for the gift of the food that lasts forever. 
Jesus not wanting to make things difficult, to make things so hard to say, hey, you have to do this work, you have to do that work. He singles his work down to one thing, and that work is belief, nothing new. From Genesis to Revelation, it's always been about belief. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Romans chapter 4, verses 2 through 5, speaking of Abraham, says this, For if Abraham was justified by works, if he was, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Don't forget about the prologue that John begins to speak about in the fourth gospel. He says this in John 20, 31, the purpose of him writing this gospel. But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name because he is God. You see, believing in the one whom God has sent secures the gift And the gift, once again, is Jesus. He's the food that endures to eternal life. Because when people believe in him, Jesus reveals himself to that person, and so does the Father. And it's in this relationship with God through Jesus Christ that individuals experience the gift of eternal life. And human hunger is finally met there. So he says in verse 30, therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Anytime unbelievers begin to quote scripture, you need to raise your antenna. They think they have you here. So they're trying to push buttons, hint, hint. What do you think about this? They try to put the onus back on Jesus to prove to him that he is the bread of life. Their behavior proves to us that they don't really want to be saved, not here anyway. Because they've already remembered, they've already seen the signs that he had performed. That's why they met him on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. After they have been fed this bread from heaven right here. So once again, they're wanting to be fed. They are looking for an earthly Messiah. They're looking for someone who will liberate them from Roman bondage. They're not thinking of anything of eternal value here. And once again, Jesus Christ came to save us from our sins. So in verse 32, Jesus said, Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread, the genuine bread from heaven. In these verses, Jesus will do three things. Number one, he affirms that it was not Moses, but his father who gave them the manna. Moses was just the mediator. He moves them away from their past history. That's what they're stuck on until the present of Jesus 
give, the father giving Jesus the right to give them the true bread. God gave manna from heaven in the past, but now he's giving them the true bread, which is Jesus Christ. The third thing, he explains who this true bread is. He says in verse 33, for the bread of God is he, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. In verse 27, Jesus says, he is the bread of life, which the son of man will give you. In verse 33, he implies it, but he will say it explicitly. Hey, lays it out right for them to see it in verse 35. So he says, then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Sounds to me like the Samaritan woman. As Jesus was trying to reel her in, she finally begins to notice and think of her hunger for something eternal. That's what they are implying here. The Samaritan woman had faith, but most of this crowd here doesn't. And he says, and Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. This is the first of seven different I am's in the book of John. He says, he who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Hunger and thirst are simply metaphors for the need of the human soul. We run after things. We try different things to satiate that inward hole that we have in us. But nothing or no one will satisfy except for the person of Jesus Christ. That's what he's getting the crowd to try to understand. Once again, does this mean that when I receive Jesus Christ into my life that I will never thirst or hunger for anything again? No, because we carry around this flesh. But what he is saying, as John chapter 14 and John chapter 15 will uh, elaborate on, that when the Holy Spirit, when we're born again, when the Holy Spirit comes inside of us, then we are satiated, we are filled for that longing that was in us. That's what he's saying here. We might have tough times, we will have hard times, but I still have that peace that surpasses all understanding because God is in me, he's with me, and I'm satisfied with Jesus and Jesus alone. And as long as I'm walking by the Spirit, allowing the Spirit to rule and reign in my life, I won't thirst and hunger over any other thing. Because I know that Jesus Christ will supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory. The things I don't get is the things I don't need. What I need is Jesus Christ in my life. Now I am satisfied. And this is what he's trying to get them to understand here. Jesus says in verse 36, But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Once again, they had seen him feeding the 5,000. They have seen him cure the man at the pool of Bethesda. As Nicodemus said, he had did many a signs. They had seen a lot of these, but they won't believe. Because they won't believe because they're seeking Jesus for the wrong reason. Everything that he's done, they're just laying it to a side because they want to hear him now. They want to be full now. They're not thinking of eternal things. 
just like all of us did before we came to know Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior. So he says in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Now, it seems as if Jesus is not even surprised or upset by this multitude, by this crowd, because he says in chapter 1, no one has to tell me what's in man because I already know the heart of man. So I know that you guys are coming, you're seeking me, but you're seeking me for the wrong reason. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. That word all is pan, and it's a neuter singular, and what it means is very uh, important in this text. So it depicts those whom the Father gave Jesus, listen, as a collective entity. That's hard for some to grasp. He's picked those that are going to be born again. John speaks of this all the way through his gospel. Jesus speaks of believers as those the Father has given him that they will receive eternal life. He says in John 10, 29, a little of that verse, my Father who has given them to me, given them to me. He says in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 2, He gives eternal life to as many as you have given him. And then he says in verse 6 of the same chapter, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Let me allow you to ponder on this verse, Acts 13, 48. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So we can view this on the human side. Those who come to Jesus are those who believe in him. But viewed from the divine side, they are those whom the Father has given to Jesus. There's still a free will. There's still a free choice. We cannot move a hair's breadth to the Lord until we are drawn. And then when we are drawn, there's your choice. That's what Jesus is saying. Once again, the prologue in chapter 1 of John, he, he says it in a different way. John 1, 12, 13, he says this, but as many as received him, To them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I've told you guys before, when I was probably about 18 years of age, I used to go to a Bible study at Pleasant Hill Church. We were talking about, the pastor was talking about Esau and Jacob Esau I love, Jacob I hated. It really doesn't mean exactly what it says. It's a different word. But the point is, me in my hard heartness, me in my stubbornness, I said, well, hey, maybe I'm just Esau. Maybe the Lord is not choosing me. Maybe I'm just on my way to hell. But the scripture does not say that. No one can come to the Father except he draws. We have the general revelation of God. The heavens declare the glory of God and the earth shows forth his handiwork. 
Anyone should be able to look up and see creation that says, there must be a God. Now, that won't get you saved, but that should get you thinking, if there's a God, I need to stop making these wooden idols. And I need to start seeking and asking, who is this God? And I said before, I don't care what island a person may be abandoned to. If he can look up and see creation and begin to say, hey, there must be a God, sincerely, God will reveal himself, the gospel to this person. It takes the gospel to be born again. But creation says that there's a God. And if you allow that to happen, sincerely, God will reveal himself to you. That's why Jesus is saying what he's saying. This is the will of the Father who sent me that none sent me that all he has given me I should lose nothing. That should mean eternal security there. And this eternal security is tied to the son's obedience to the father. And we know he's going to do that on one hand. And the will of the father on the other hand. For any of us whom the father has given to his son to be lost would mean Jesus has failed his case of obedience. And he's not going to do that. So all that the father gives to the son will come to him and he will bring them to the kingdom. He says in verse 38, for I have come down from heaven, Jesus speaking, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Notice how many times Jesus is saying the word will. It's the father's will that I'm concerned with. If we would do this throughout the day, we would be the salt and light that the Lord has called us to be. Because the only thing that Jesus has on his mind is the will of the Father. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will. I have been born again not to do my own will. I did my own will for 32 years When I was in rebellion to the Lord, I did my own will. Now that I've surrendered my life to Jesus Christ, now that he has blessed me to allow the Holy Spirit to come inside of me, Victor, it's not about your will anymore, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all all that he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. What can be better than this? The believer gets eternal life now, and then we are raised up for eternal life in the last day. We have everlasting life only in the person of Jesus Christ. I'm amazed at this because I know the scripture says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. I don't believe the day I die that there's going to be a black darkness for a second because I'm afraid of the dark, and then I wake up and I'm in the kingdom. I don't believe it works like that. I believe when I take my last breath, the Lord escorts me into the kingdom. There's no blackness there. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8 says this, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We might think of the mansion that's there, but he's speaking of this glorified body that we will have. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven, 
If indeed having been clothed, we shall be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan. The older you get, the more you groan. Being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the spirit as a guarantee. Do you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside you, letting you know that this is just a down posit now? So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well, pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. He says in verse 40, a will again, and this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son, not uh, physically see the Son, but recognizes him for who he truly is and the work he has come to complete, that's salvation right there. He says in Hebrews 10, 5 through 7, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. They were just a covering until the real deal comes into the world. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Jesus Christ, I say it all the time, he and only he does the heavy lifting. He does the real work. That's why he says there's only one work for you guys to believe. And I'm not asking very much of you because I'm going to give you the faith to believe. That's what he says. So it's no real work being done really by us. The real work is done by Jesus Christ. He says in verse 40, and this is the will of him who sent me that everyone who sees the son and believes places your trust all in the basket of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished in him may have everlasting life. And then he says, and I will raise him up at the last day. Day. They knew Jesus according to the flesh, but veiled in that flesh was his deity. And they missed his genuine identity because they were too busy pursuing the food that perishes. Work, work, work. Fun, fun, fun. You can have fun as believers. But I'm too busy doing this. I'm too busy doing that. And I never had the opportunity. I never had the chance to slow down just enough to ponder what happens after this life. All of the signs Jesus had performed was given so to them that they might know that Jesus Christ was their Messiah. But they were too busy running after things of the world. They were caught up in the here and now. I've never been to Haiti. One of these days I might go on a mission trip there. But a friend of mine says, I can understand those who become Christians over there. And you would wonder, why are they so happy and why are they so satisfied for these little wood uh, cardboard huts that they live in? Because they have Jesus Christ. And they don't have much 
that, that they can say, oh, I wish I had this, I wish I had that. I believe now it's more difficult to be a believer in the United States of America than it is in any foreign country. Because we have been blessed with so much and we take so much for granted trying to keep up with the Joneses. They have that, so I better get this. They got this car, so I better get that truck. All of those things. And I think the enemy is sitting back laughing, saying, I got them. I've got them. Or I've got them enough that they won't truly spend their time on things that matter. We are here for one purpose, whether we know it or not, after we are born again, to serve the Lord, his agenda, not mine. Lord, what is your will for me today? What do you want me to do today? How can I please you today? As we're going through the book of 1 Samuel, that's why David is a man, was a man after God's own heart because he was all about the glory of God. It wasn't about him. It was about God's glory. Are we living for God's glory? Are we satisfied what God has given us? Is that enough? Is that enough? Or are we still striving for things that don't matter? They were caught up in the here and now and missed out on eternal life. We don't want to do that. He says in John 5, 28, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which we all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Done good is once again is putting their trust in Jesus Christ, repenting of, their, of your sins. Then he says in verse 41, the Jews. And in John's gospel, anytime he says the Jews, he's speaking of the opponents of God in John's gospel here. They oppose the Lord. So he says the Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. They are behaving just like their ancestors now, whether they understand it, believe it or not. Exodus 16, 2 says, then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. At first, for their ancestors, at least they were complaining because they hadn't received the manna yet. These cats have received the manna and had a gracious invitation given them, Jesus telling them, I know I fed you, but that's nothing because I'm the true manna. He gives this gracious invitation, and then they begin to complain. Not enough. Not satisfied. I want my genie in the bottle. Everything I ask for, I want you to give me, and then maybe I'll be satisfied. That's why they begin to grumble and complain here. Think back with me in Romans Romans chapter 1, it says this in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What do they do? Who suppress the truth. They know it. They know enough to be drawn, but they suppress it. In unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, 
for God has shown it to them. That's why we get this contemptuous reaction now. They've been simmering. They've been listening. They ran after him for food, for material food, for physical food. He says, no, 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 no. I fed you once. Let me give you this spiritual food. And that spiritual food is me. And so he's jousting. It's really a debate. The Midrash calls it that whole discourse a a, a debate between Jesus and the crowds. And after he begins to tell them that, no, I'm the bread of life, they finally begin to understand that he's not going to feed us anymore. And what happens when people learn that you want something from somebody and you find out they're not going to give it to you? What's your reaction? Well, this is their reaction right here. I want you to, this is why they say what they said right here. Verse 42, and they said, watch how quickly they return. Is not this Jesus, the illegitimate child? That's what they're thinking. The son of Joseph, his dad is just a lowly carpenter whose father and mother we know. We know who you are, Jesus. We know your parents had you out of wedlock. Everything that's in them is coming out because they were after him. We might give you a little props. We might genuflect to you and kowtow to you because we know you, you're probably a miracle worker. But you're telling me you're more than a miracle worker? I've got to eat your flesh and drink your blood? No, 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 that's too much. I'm not going to do that, Jesus. Jesus says in the synoptic gospels, If you don't deny all, I think that word all means all. He says, if you don't deny all and then, that's not all of it, and pick up your cross and follow me, what's the rest of it? You cannot be my disciple. That's what he's telling them right here. They're wanting him for something else. They're trying to make like people can do, make their own God, make their own Jesus. That they don't have to give up things and, and, and all those other kind of things. Jesus says no. And so they begin to hurl in the inside, I think, all of these insults at him. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? They thought they knew him, but they didn't. John 1, 1 says again, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The first, uh, verse 14 says, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. They don't know him at all. Verse 43, now he doesn't make any attempt to correct their grumbling because he knows that it's not their time yet. And we need to learn from that. When we go out and witness, we don't need to argue. We share the gospel. If they're not drawn to the gospel, if they want to argue, just say, hey, it's not their time yet. Jesus therefore answered and said to them, do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. The Old Testament speaks of God drawing people with, with bands or cords of love. Jeremiah 31, Hosea speaks of that. But now the Father begins to draw people by the proclamation of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. He says in John 12, 32, and I, if I am lifted up on that cross, that's what it means, from the earth will draw all peoples to myself. 
an equivalent verse of that. Speaking of God in the Old Testament drawing people with love, this is the greatest sign of love right here. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Talking about being drawn by cords of love. Here it is right here. What he does. Only those who the father gives to Jesus comes to him in faith. That's what the scripture says. Jesus says, and I will raise him up at the last day. For every New Testament believer, our resurrection on the last day is the consummation of what we have now living this eternal life. But for those who don't come to Jesus Christ, that will be a day of reckoning. Verse 44, he says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. And I want to highlight that John, the apostle of love, he felt no tension between predestination and free will because the Bible speaks of both. Jesus's statement here does not deny free will. Jesus, in his grace, draws or allures people to him, but he will not drag anyone. We have a choice to make. That's why it says in Revelation twenty-two seventeen, and the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who, who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life Freely, And once again, that word freely is without a cause. You haven't earned it. You don't deserve it. But I'm freely offering eternal life to you. He says in verse 45, it is written in the prophets. And they say all will be taught by God. That comes from Isaiah 54, 13. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from, from the Father, Jesus says, comes to me. Isaiah 54, 13 speaks of the glorious blessings of the children of Israel when they come out of Babylon exile. And they're thinking this end time blessing will be the manna of God raining down on them. He says, all your sons will be taught by God. So Jesus takes this text and he flips it around and he says this, everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. And this coming to the Father is the inner working of the Holy Spirit. Once again, you're being drawn. No one can come unless the Father draws. That's what he's speaking of. We must respond to him. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, speaking of himself. He has seen the Father. The only one that has seen the Father is the one who has come down from above and give life to everyone he will. He says of himself, Jesus Christ, I am in the bosom of the Father. I've told you before, so every work Jesus does while, did while he was on the earth, he was still in the bosom of the Father doing that work. That's unity, and that's what he wants them to understand. There's not salvation in anyone but Jesus Christ. Then he says in verse 47, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. I bet he points at himself. I'm your necessary food. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. They might have been satisfied for a moment physically, 
but they were not satisfied spiritually. It's hard to understand, especially when you're an unbeliever, and it's still difficult at times now that we are believers, that we are spiritual beings. We are spiritual beings. We will relate, and we do relate to God on a spiritual plane. That's the way it is. How much time, PV, do you spend praying? How much time do you spend, PV, talking to the Lord as you work? How much time do you meditate on his word? Because I, can't do, I cannot do any of those things watching SpongeBob. It won't happen. It won't happen if I'm watching Alabama Crimson Tide get beat by Georgia. Not, not, that's not a spiritual thing. How much time do we spend spiritually communicating, navigating this life? Because that's what it boils down to. That's what the word of God always boils down to. Communicating, meditating on his word instead of meditating, communicating on the physical and the material. That's all Jesus is talking about here. Where is your priorities? How do we navigate these things? He says, I gave you what you want. I gave you the manna. Your ancestors still die. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of, of it and not die. Jesus is offering spiritual life to them that overcomes spiritual death. That's what we need. He says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. By the way, which makes him greater than Moses. Because I told you last week, they, a lot of the Jews venerated Moses. They were, they were putting him on the same plane, if not greater, than Jesus Christ. And he says, hey, look, he's dead. Get your facts straight. He says in verse 51, if anyone eats of this bread... He will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh. Jesus, since they've really made their case, their point, they're not going to come to me. They've hurled all of these insults at him. You would think he'd back up and begin to plead. He doesn't do that. He gives them both barrels. He says, okay, you've got to jump this hurdle. You've got to jump that hurdle to come to me. That's what he says here. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Now, let me tell you what this bread is. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh. How do you think a Jew would feel about that? Knowing Leviticus. That you can't eat, you shouldn't eat the flesh with blood in it. He's speaking of all those things. They think that's what he's thinking, but he's not. Shall give the flesh that I give shall be my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Then he says in verse 52, the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves. They're really upset, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And he uses the the, the imagery of eating, speaking of this spiritual food again. And what he's saying, we must appropriate Jesus Christ into our lives. Now, when it comes to believers, 
Are we still doing that? Moses, when he would go up onto Sinai and speak with God, the scripture tells us he would come back down the mountain. He, he didn't even know the first time that his face, his countenance was glowing. And when they begin to tell him, what did he do from, from here on out? When he would go on the mountain, he would put a covering over his face. So they would not know, uh, 2 Corinthians tells us, that the glory was fading away. Speaking of Moses, every time we get along with the Lord, every time we feast on his word, every time we spend time in prayer, the glory is upon us, our attitude, how we think, how we issue out grace, how we communicate with one another. It's different because we've been spending time with the Lord. But the less we do that, the more we look like the world. And that's what he's saying. Are you appropriating me? Are you feasting on me daily? Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, where all of the righteous wrath, indignation of the Father hits Jesus Christ. He's also our atoning sacrifice. I say that to say this. He's relating this Passover. Remember at the Passover Seder, the death angel was coming. And they had to take the blood and put it on the doorpost and the lentil. And then as that was going on, They were roasting this lamb, and they had to eat it. They were appropriating. They were eating it. He was becoming a part of them. That's what he's saying here. He's doing all of this to let them know, give your lives to me, walk close with me, and I will bring you home. During that time, let me say this. Jesus began to teach people in parables because when he started his ministry, He didn't teach in parables much. But when he went to Capernaum and all these different places and they turned away from him, this is what he says in Matthew 13, 13. He says, I speak to them in parables because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. He did that because when he speaks in parables, You have an opportunity. You have a choice to make. All of your preconceived ideas about Messiah, you have to make a choice. Do you believe what Messiah is saying or do you want to believe your preconceived ideas? So the choice falls back to you. And all of those who want the truth of the word, remember, even his disciples came back to Jesus on a couple of parables and say, hey, we don't understand this. Explain it to us. But they never did hear showing the hardness of their hearts. So he's speaking in these metaphoric terms because a lot of people, especially in the first century, said, hey, these Christians are cannibals. They're eating flesh and drinking blood, especially at the Lord's Supper. They're thinking all of this weird stuff, and Jesus is saying no. You have to appropriate my life into your life, and we become one, and I will satisfy you here. That's what he's saying here. But he's also winnowing this crowd because many are following him for the wrong reasons. 
That's why I've seen many of in my life who profess to be Christians after three or four years, five years, they're not believers anymore because Jesus winnows. Why are you following me? Is it for what I can give you, physical, material things, or is it for eternal life? Is it for salvation? He knows this crowd. He knows the reason they are following him. So he says, any other huge church would say, I don't care. Bring them on in. We want a big crowd in here. But you should be concerned about souls. You should be concerned about salvation because things aren't going to always be well in this life. And then are you going to, are you going to continue to walk with Jesus Christ or you're not? He's here to give them salvation. And so he's separating the wheat from the chaff. And there's a, a lot of chaff because he says, how can this man, they say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? You can hear the sound of the chaff and of the winnowing here because they are turning away. He says in verse 53, then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He's not speaking of that self-generating life that only Jesus, the Godhead, has, but he's speaking of the life that Jesus will give the believer. And then we walk that life out because we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit inside of us. John 5:40 puts it this way, but you are not willing to come, Jesus says to me, that you may have life. Verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. They knew the commandments. They knew what he was saying, but they were looking at it from a different perspective. This is what was in their hearts. Leviticus chapter 17, verses 11 through 14. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, no one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood. Whatever man of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you, who hunts and catches any animal or bird that may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust. For it is the life of all flesh. Its blood sustains its life. Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is in its blood. Whoever eats, it shall be cut off. Once again, blood was the atonement. Jesus was speaking of his, him making atonement by his death and giving life to those who would personally, once again, appropriate him. Faith in Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection gives you eternal life. Then he says in verse 56, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. He says in John 15, I am the true vine, you are the branches, you can do nothing unless you remain in me. All of those that don't remain in me will be broken off and cast in the fire. I did not say that. The Bible says that. 
It's called the perseverance of the saints. We must persevere down here. Jesus is all that the Father gives me, I hold in my hand, and no one can snatch them out. As long as I want to be there, I'm going to be there. But anyone could walk away, and I don't know why they would, but anyone can. That's what the Scripture teaches. He says in verse 57, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live. He says, live and living three times here because of me. Once again, remember when he was debating with the Sadducees in the temple about his resurrection because they didn't believe in the resurrection? And he says this in Matthew twenty-two thirty-two. Jesus says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. David says, the living God will kill Goliath for us. He trusted in the living God. Are we trusting in the living God? We serve a risen Lord, a living master. Do we live like it? We should be the most confident people in the world because of whose team we are on. We should be bold as lions, the scripture says. Can the worship team come up? Because I don't want to get into verse 60 because we're going to sit there for a while. I'll close with verse 58 and 59. After hearing this discourse, and I believe Jesus is saying this with Tears in his eyes and a compassionate heart because many of these people in this crowd, they're going to turn away. As a matter of fact, John says they're going to turn away and they never walk with him again. Why do they turn away? They turn away because Jesus didn't satisfy them the way they thought he should. Jesus didn't give them everything they wanted in the here and now. Not the car, not the house, not the job, not the spouse. Maybe that's not for you. These material things he did not give them, and many of them turned away, and the scripture says, and never walked with him again. Do we have that in us? Do we have that in us? Possibly. We all, possibly. That's why we need to walk close to the Lord. That's why each and every day we need to understand the, uh, the reason we gave our lives to Jesus Christ is because of eternal salvation. They said, I have, I have not seen the video many years ago. They said Francis Chan, on one of his videos, he had a long rope up here, and it went for a long ways, but he had just a little mark on it on one end of it. And he said, that's 70 years, that's 80 years, that's 90 years. And then everything else is eternity. What about that? Let's not get caught up in, in the things of the world. We are pilgrims. We are strangers. We are sojourners. Pilgrims on our way home, sojourners not having a home. 
This world is not our home. I don't have a home. But I'm headed. I'm a pilgrim. I'm heading home. That's the way we should live. We should live to bring glory to God, Pastor Victor. Not getting caught up on what's happening in this world. I'll close with this. I got to tell you a quick story. We're remodeling the upstairs at our, at our home, and the floors were torn up. And so after they, the crew left, I go in the front room, and uh, I see just water all over the place. And I know we used to have a water leak there. And I said, man, we're fixing to put this, this laminate down. Maybe I should fix this leak. But I thought it was good to go. So... I said, Lydia, call her downstairs. And I go get the crowbar, and I get the hammer, and I'm, I can't believe this. I'm tearing up the floor. And I said, she's, by that time, she's up there with me, and we're putting our feet on the floor, and you can see the water coming up, and so I'm tearing up more tile. And I said, go get me a mop, and I'm tearing up more tile. And we spent 30 and, about 30 or 40 minutes, the whole floor. They won't have to get everything up now because we almost got everything up before they lay it. And then we dried it up, come back the next morning, no water. And so as I go into the kitchen area, I go in, and when they took the dish, uh, the uh, washing machine out, you know, the hose that takes the water, they didn't put it into the thing, so it had water all on the floor there. So all of that water, you couldn't tell at the time because they swept and everything, all of that water, and it was a lot had ran to this area. And by that time, Lydia was saying, man, everything always happens to us. And I had just finished talking about David, (laughs) it's Wednesday, how he had confidence in the Lord. But my point is, nothing happened. The floor is fine. But even if it wasn't fine, one more story. (laughs) Paul Allen And I've shared this a little bit, but what blessed my heart. Because where we live, we we used to have a ministry there. I never had to pay high property taxes. Ten years. Uh, $200, $300. We'll pay that. Lady, we'll pay that when we get time. No big deal. But now that they said it's a house and everything is going up because of across the street, I get this bill for 3000 and something dollars for property taxes. And the first thing I did, Paul, this is what's going on. What are we going to do about this? And so when we went to the county, Paul, went, when he was talking, and they said, two weeks, I think, that you finally called him on the phone, and I could hear the conversation. No, he's going to have to pay this because he hadn't paid that. And tears were running down my eyes. And they wasn't tears of, oh, thank you, Lord. It was tears of, I don't believe this. I don't believe this. I was hot. But my point is, the Holy Spirit came in, and he said, it's going to be all right. You have the money. Thank me for having the money. It's not going to kill you to pay this money. But the day I took it up there and paid it, I was like this. My point is, once again, it rains here. 
It rains. It's always rain, rained, and it will always rain here on this earth. We have to understand that and understand that we are passing through here. The Lord will not put more on us, on us than we can bear. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is faithful in his promises. That's why I love him. People change. But God never changes. That's why you sons of Jacob are not consumed. So walk with confidence. And I'll close with this. Count the good days. And when that bad day comes, it's not so bad because I haven't had bad, a, a so-called bad day in a while. So if I just can count those good days, when something does happen, I sh- Lord, well, I'm living in a fallen world, but I love you and I know I'm not going to live here forever. I've given you my life. May I honor you. I'm here to glorify you, not to do anything else. Everything else truly is wood, hay, and stubble. I want to do those things that will last an eternity. And that's pleasing you, bowing down to you. Not my will, but your will be done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. You're the God who saves. You're the God who loves us so much that you called us to your eternal home. Jesus, yes, you said in this life we would have tribulation, but be of good cheer. We've overcome the world. I'm reminded of what Abraham did with his nephew Lot. Lot, you choose. Whichever way you want to go, you choose it. I'll take the remainder because he had confidence in his God. Lord, may we have that kind of confidence in you. No matter what comes our way, everything filters through your hand. And you are a good God. So remind us of that, Lord, throughout the day and throughout the week. Remind us that we are passing through. Remind us, if God be for us, who can be against us? We love you. May we love you more. Lord, would you protect us? Protect our families? Keep us safe? I know you're our provider. You're going to do that. Paul is the one who says, I've learned for that I have much or plenty, that Jesus supplies all my needs by Christ Jesus. We love you, Lord. May we continue to serve you with our whole heart. And we ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God. Amen. Let's stand and close with a song, please.